0: Hello. She was born in 1908 into a bourgeois Parisian family. So fiercely intelligent, her father proudly declared that Simone thought like a man. But really, it was the question of what it meant to be and to think like a woman that preoccupied her life and work. Simone de Beauvoir studied at the Sorbonne, the finest of French educational institutions, and at the age of 21, she was the youngest student ever to pass the Aggregation in Philosophy, the intensely competitive national exams. She would go on to teach, write, and agitate, co-founding the intellectual magazine Le Temps Moderne and publishing novels like The Mandarins, which won her the Prix Goncourt in 1954. But in 1949, she wrote a book of philosophy, It asked, why in the history of thought had women been so often classified as second to men? The second sex became a landmark work of the 20th century. And in today's programme, we're exploring the life, work and legacy of Simone de Beauvoir. Here to guide us are Catherine Sophia Bell, Professor of Philosophy at Pennsylvania State University and Founding Director of the Collegium of Black Women Philosophers. Sky Cleary, who teaches in New York and is writing a new book about Simone de Beauvoir, Fulfillment and Authenticity. Lauren Elkin, writer and translator of one of Beauvoir's novels, The Inseparables. And Kate Kirkpatrick, fellow in philosophy and Christian ethics at Regent's Park College, Oxford University, and the author of the biography, Becoming Beauvoir a Life*. Hello, Catherine, Skye, Lauren and Kate. Hello, thank you
1: Hello. for having us.
0: Hey, it's so lovely to have you virtually with me. We we should say that this conversation is a partnership between Radio 3's free thinking programme and the Forum for Philosophy, which hosts regular online philosophy events. So today we have a live Zoom audience as well as our radio audience out there in the ether. If you are in the live audience right now, then you might like to know that you too can be involved. You can pose questions to our panel by typing your question in the chat box at any time throughout the discussion and I will try to ask those questions on your behalf in the later part of the event and they may even make its way into our program. So thank you for joining us. Let me start with you, our guests, though, and where you started with Beauvoir. I, I still own an orange penguin edition of The Second Sex, which I'm going to put to the camera in case anybody can see it. And I'm lucky it's the one with Matisse's blue women cutouts on the cover. And in the inside cover, you can see my name scrawled in biro and the date November 1997, when I was 17. Um, but I want to know when you first read Beauvoir and what your first impressions were lauren maybe you could go first sure sorry just unmuting myself there
2: um so yeah i i I, when you said that you were going to be asking this question i had to reach way back into my memory because I, i think i was an undergraduate at barnard in the late 90s And I remember like in orientation, all the other girls talking about this person, Simone de Beauvoir, this great feminist. And I had no idea who they were talking about. You know, I'm coming from like the suburbs of Long Island, like Simone de Beauvoir. It's not, you know, a a typical topic of conversation where I'm from. So um, I ended up reading her her novel, The Woman Destroyed, in a French class. And that was my first um, exposure to her. And I remember being just completely enraptured by its anger and its directness um and the story of this this older woman who i think probably directly inspired um Elena Ferrante's The Days of Abandonment i'd like to see someone talking about those
0: two novels together anyway mm-hmm. that, was, that was my my early mm-hmm. experience oh hi <laughs> we should say your your son is also in the background yes. in case we have any, uh, a, a fifth contributor to our, a, a, a exactly. welcome fifth yes. contributor to our discussion. Uh, well, Kate, what about you? When did you first read Beauvoir? And, and, and,
3: so I also had to look back in the recesses of my memory um, for this. And I to be honest, I, I had to identify three origin stories. So the the first time I encountered Beauvoir was actually in the secondary literature Um Written by one of my um, very inspiring undergraduate mentors as a student in philosophy, Pamela Sue Anderson, and she had worked closely with Michelle Le Duff, uh, French feminist philosopher, and invited me to collaborate on a project of translation of Michelle Le Duff's works into English. And so, reading both Anderson and Le Duff uh, gave me this kind of um, induction into Beauvoir as a feminist. Uh, which problematized her status as as a philosopher um, and often rejected her as redundant. Um, We can talk about that more later. Um, But then I discovered another Beauvoir a few years later in in a a book that a friend gave me. I I was trying to improve my French, and this French friend gave me Les Mandarins, the the mandarins, and she's like, well, you need to read this. and, and then it, it was it was a very slow conversion for me. Um, I, I wasn't uh, set afire quickly. Um, but the more I read about Beauvoir, the more I thought she had been unjustly.
0: Yeah. Oh, so the fiction for both Lauren and Kate was the way in. That's rather interesting.
4: Sky, what about you? Yeah, fiction was the way in for me too. Um, and I was, I actually came to Beauvoir quite late. I was uh, doing my MBA at the time and the lecturer started talking about existentialism in the boardroom, <laughs> um, which I thought was really amazing and it it blew my mind and uh, she started talking about Simone de Beauvoir who I'd never really heard of before or I'd heard of her in passing but not in any serious way and I was like wow I want to know more about this um and she immediately pretty much sparked my interest and so I went up to the lecturer afterwards and I said oh you know tell me more like where can I learn more and the next class she came with uh, the lecturer came with a um a list of Beauvoir's books and she's like oh here you go and so the first on the list was the mandarins so I basically started there and worked my way through and just and haven't stopped since um, and yeah I was I was ravenous to to know more about this way of thinking, because so much of it resonated with a lot of the different questions I was asking myself about freedom and responsibility and authenticity. Um, and then it was only shortly after that, that the book came out called Tête à Tête by Hazel Rowley. So I was like, wow, Okay, so that was um, a very, um, gave me another insight into Beauvoir and, and her personal life. Ravenous is a great word. I,
0: I think I remember feeling ravenous at 17 and it was Beauvoir who fed me at that age. What about you, Catherine? When did you first come across Beauvoir?
1: So I was introduced to Beauvoir's work as an undergraduate student at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. So Spelman is a historically black college. It's also a small liberal arts women's college where um, as a philosophy major, black feminism and issues of race, class and gender were always at the forefront of the far- of philosophy as opposed to on the margins of philosophy. So I was introduced to Beauvoir's work initially through Elizabeth Spellman's Inessential Woman and a course that I was taking on uh, philosophy and feminism. And I found Elizabeth Spellman's arguments and critiques of the second sex compelling enough that it didn't seem like a text that I necessarily needed to go to. Um, by the time I got into graduate school, when I was working on my PhD in philosophy, I was looking at more of Beauvoir's work through her engagements in debates with Sartre and Merleau-Ponty. So it still wasn't, you know, an engagement with the second sex or with the um, fiction. And then eventually I got to the memoirs where I was more interested in her engagement with some of her Black interlocutors like mm-hmm. um, Richard Wright and Frantz Fanon. Um, so it wasn't until after graduate school that I finally, um, well, I'd read like um, Ethics of Ambiguity and then I got into the second sex. And I realized, um, like, I never had that ravenous experience or that life-changing experience because my introduction to feminism was through Black fen- feminism, mm-hmm. through people like Anne Angela Davis and Bell Hooks and Patricia Collins, or even going further back to people like Maria Stewart, as far as 1831 in the U.S. context. So for me, the second sex was always lacking in a certain kind of way because of its inattentiveness or problematic attentiveness to issues of race, class, and gender, um, and Black women in particular.
0: But what a fascinating context in which to place her and understand her. And I think we're going to hear more about that from you in a moment. I want to start our conversation with with the life. And Kate, perhaps I can come to you first about this because you wrote a biography of Beauvoir. And, and although we want to think about her work today, I wonder whether it's possible to talk objectively about her ideas apart from her life.
3: Well, um, no. <laughs> um, you're talking about a philosopher who interrogates the very concept of objectivity um, in, in the introduction of the second sect. He says, quote, every so-called objective description is set against an ethical background. And so Beauvoir's life is always very politicized. um, And it has been and it's been acknowledged as such since the 1950s. So in the black feminist tradition, uh, Lorraine Hansberry um, complained already in in the 1950s that the critical discussion of the second sex uh, was often casual and ill-informed. And there was a lot of completely irrelevant commentary about her personal life, um, which was ironic uh, because that kind of gossip about her life is itself um, what Hansberry called a tribute to the accuracy of her thesis. Um, so I think that um, it's there are questions about philosophy and biography that we could ask in the abstract about how much we need to understand a person's life to understand their work. Um, some people think not at all. Some people go to the opposite extreme and say, you won't understand the work without the life. Um, but in Beauvoir's case, I think the two sides of, of this equation, the life and work, are particularly interesting because her work was about women's lives and how they are mutilated by patriarchy and how the mythology of what it means to be a woman um, is uh, is often well, t- kind of but conforms to tropes that reduce women to erotic plots. Okay. So I don't think it's possible to be objective, but it's really interesting. Why not?
0: She, she does say that there is no divorce between philosophy and life and every living step is a philosophical choice, which is a f- fascinating formulation. I'm not sure I know what it means, though. I, 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 I wonder, Sky, maybe you, you can understand. What does wh- what, what does it mean for there to be no divorce between philosophy and life?
4: Well, I think especially for the existential philosophers like Simone de Beauvoir who were um, creating a philosophy that could be lived, or at least they were trying to create a philosophy that that could be lived. Um, and you know, there's um, the story of when they were um, kind of at, fresh out of college and and uh, uh, sitting around and talking and about boring abstract philosophizing that Kant and Hegel used to do. And they were like, you know, what? we want something that you know is is relevant to everyday life. And that was at the point where. Um, is it Raymond Aaron? I think said, "Oh, if you're a phenomenologist, you could um, make a philosophy out of this apricot cocktail." And uh, they were like, "Wow, finally there is philosophy!" Because they, you know, they wanted a, a way to talk about life's experiences and to talk about passion and love and um, all these these uh, challenges they they were facing. Um, and so, I mean, I think for some philosophers, it it doesn't matter, like what their life was like, like maybe, um, you know, if you're talking about philosophy of mathematics or something, it's, it's life isn't so relevant. But if you're talking about the human condition, if you're talking about, you know, the ethical ways and, and the webs of relationships we're in and um, how we relate to other people, like it's, it's hugely relevant and, and actually critical to look at uh, the way uh, we're actually living our lives. I was going to ask for a definition
0: of phenomenology because you mentioned phenomenologists, but what you've just given me there, I think, is exactly it, right? It's a a, a philosophical form of a philosophical school that thinks about lived experience relationships ethical uh, the ethical ways we connect with each other uh, uh, it, and it's an apricot cocktail for instance right um but i i wonder what parts or if there if there are specific parts of beauvoir's life that help us understand her thought catherine do you, are there particular parts of her life that you think bear upon the way we should be thinking about her well, I think but
1: I, I want to go back to the original question because I think it is difficult to speak um, objectively about her life or about her ideas, right? They're always already going to be subjective. And I do love that Kate brought up Lorraine Hansberry's review because that is um, a text that's often overlooked in terms of um, Lorraine Hansberry as, as one of the first um, kind of recovery um, scholars of Simona before. I think we tend in the U.S. context to associate that with Elizabeth Spellman or uh, Margaret Peg Simons, um, and they've done important work, but decades earlier, Lorraine Hansberry was doing this work. And so she really does um, critique this gossip about Beauvoir and what is um, identified as the biographical imperative years later. Um, and so I want to think about this biographical imperative as it relates to Beauvoir in particular, but women and Black women um, as well, right? So I first encountered this phrase in Vivian May's book on Anna Julia Cooper called Anna Julia Cooper, visionary black feminists a critical introduction and Vivian May is drawing on work by Valerie Smith and Coco Fusco where she considers the myriad ways that Black women's theoretical claims have been under-engaged or even dismissed because so much attention is given to their life stories, right? And so I think this notion of the biographical imperative does apply to Beauvoir because people have been much more obsessed with her relationship to Sartre or her relationship to Nelson Algren or whatever the case may be, as opposed to really critically engaging her ideas. So I don't think they should be mutually exclusive, right? The life and the ideas. But I think we often focus on the life at the expense of actually Critically engage in the ideas and um, and I think a reversal of that needs to happen.
0: Uh, we, you you've hit upon a, a particular problem in 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 any of us approaching a discussion about Beauvoir which is do we keep do we reserve a space for Jean-Paul Sartre in this conversation because he is a important intellectual interlocutor and romantic partner for her but he's also the person with whom her name is so often coupled perhaps to the detriment of Beauvoir's story and her thoughts so let's clear the air before we we get stuck into the work and decide between us should he be a part of this conversation what do you think Lauren what do you think?
2: I mean, I would agree with, with Catherine that, you know, we have to find a balance between the degree to which we talk about the work as a, and, and in conjunction with the life. I mean, Sartre, obviously, as you've just said, was an important part of her life. And, you know, certainly if we're going to be speaking about the inseparables, he played quite an important part in the publication history of that novel. Um, but, yeah, I think that he has been overemphasized. Um, and oh, that's putting it mildly. I mean, I think she's been ostracized and laughed at, you know, in comparison to the great Jean-Paul Sartre um, and, you know, misogynistically mocked and derided over down the decades um, in order to puff up Jean-Paul Sartre. So I think, you know, I don't think that that we should exclude him from the conversation entirely. I mean, he was there and he was important. But I do think that there has been too much emphasis on, on him as superior as a philosopher to her.
0: Did you want to come in, Kate?
3: I agree. I mean, the truth is he was important uh, and the truth is also that his importance is overestimated.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's Sky. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. OK, so we're going to reserve a small space for him, but only a small space. Maybe when we're talking specifically about the inseparables, Catherine. Well, I'll say really quickly, I've been to
1: several Sartre Society meetings and Sartre conferences where her name does not come, at, come up at uh. all. And so I think it's interesting that the question even needs to be posed because there are several male philosophical figures and whom they're in relationship with, or how many children they did or did not have, or all of these personal details never even come into the come into question. Right? It's always about digging directly into the ideas. And again, I think there are there's a balance between those two extremes. But I just want to point out I've been in several spaces in yeah. which Sartre was the um, the the, the focal point as a figure, and, and her name was not even mentioned.
0: Isn't that telling? Isn't that telling? Maybe we shouldn't mention his name at all and try and resettle the balance. But let, let's see where we, we get with that.
4: Sky, go on. You want to come in? Well, yeah, I was just saying that, yes, I think that's part of it, but also part of, you know, talking about women in, you know, these male-only spaces, because so many women throughout history have supported male authors in various ways and haven't been credited for it. So I think we, we need to do both those things. Things. Yeah, yeah.
0: I want to, uh, to, to work out the kind of writer that we think she is. And that's partly because she herself declared, I am not a philosopher, I am a literary writer. And I wonder why she says that and whether you think she is correct to characterize herself as not a philosopher, but a literary writer. W- what do you think, Skye?
4: Uh, so I have to say I'm persuaded by uh, Kate's <laughs> argument in becoming Beauvoir that uh, she was um, uh, kind of given the situation at the time in in Paris and how philosophy was so often, um, you know, strongly associated with academia. And so to be a philosopher meant that you were in whatever, tenured position or whatever they they called it back then, and and that's what you did. And she was thinking about um, philosophising in a much broader sense. And so um, I don't... Uh, think that it was necessarily, you know, um, putting herself down or, or self-doubt or anything, but just she's saying, look, okay, that category is too restrictive for what I'm doing, which is I'm writing. I'm um, a novelist. I'm I'm doing all these other things, which um, opens up so many more possibilities for, for philosophizing. But then again, I think, well, why why did she do that? Because like, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and even you know, Plato and like so many people before her were happy to call themselves philosophers, even though they didn't have these like formal academic jobs, so. Do you want to come in, Kate?
3: Yes, I was thinking about this and looking up some of the passages that often get cited in discussions of this claim of Beauvoir's and um, So one thing I want to say is a little bit technical. I think we can read this as a kind of metaphysical, as a metaphilosophical claim. We can read it as a claim about what it means to do philosophy. Right. And uh, she she says in uh, one of her essays from the 1940s, Literature and Metaphysics, that there are different kinds of philosophers. There are systems philosophers like um, Leibniz or Spinoza who want to have a coherent system of metaphysics. And then there are also what she calls subjectivity philosophers and she includes in that category people like Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, so not just people who write philosophical forms, novelists who are interested in the subjective experience of what it is to live a human life and to wrestle with the ethical questions that commonly come up in human lives. And I think she she dismisses systems philosophers as um, experiencing delirium She, and she, and so she's quite negative about that kind of philosophy. Um, and it's certainly not what she wanted to do. Uh, but in in one of the the interviews that Margaret Simons, who's a pioneering a pioneering Beauvoir scholar, conducted with Beauvoir, um, she makes a really helpful um, comment about what she meant in that sentence. She says, look, there are about two philosophers, as I use the term, there are about two philosophers per century. There's Descartes, and there's spinoza so i'm not going to call myself a philosopher like it, it takes not just delirium but hubris to use this title mm. about oneself uh, so i don't think that we should use um i don't think we should we should take her too seriously when she says that she's not a philosopher um i think what we should do, do is take it as a prof- provocation well what is philosophy then yeah And one of the issues I think in Beauvoir reception is that because there have been these feminist recovery projects where people have tried to defend Beauvoir as a real philosopher, um, they've often tried to shoehorn her into the conventions of a discipline in an academic university context and say, no, she's a philosopher because X or Y, instead of thinking, well, actually, maybe the the conventions of our disciplinary context are hierarchical in unhelpful
0: ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, that th- that's really helpful. I think that she's contesting the conventions of what is understood as philosophy, and also writing it differently, perhaps, which might explain the relationship between her fiction and her her, her philosophy too. C- Catherine, I wonder if you have thoughts on that because I know that you're a philosopher who's been very keen to recover Beauvoir's status as a philosopher. W- why is that?
1: Um, I mean, I'm not so much invested in recovering her status as a philosopher. I think a lot of work's been done. I mean, I think the the, the answer to this question is both yes and no, right? And I'm thinking about another philosopher that I work on, Hannah Arendt, who makes similar claims, right? And she self-identifies as a political thinker rather than as a philosopher. Um, So on the one hand, I want to say, yes, this is the case because I think it's important to honor how people self-identify, right? But no, insofar as they're not only um, formerly trained in philosophy, but they're both taking up existing philosophical ideas while simultaneously offering their own original philosophical ideas, right? But I think the rejection of the label of philosopher is really nuanced here, right? As I've already yeah. been discussed, right? So it has to do with their own perceptions of the limits of philosophy and how they sought to exceed those limits as well as their awareness of how they were perceived by men in philosophy who explicitly stated that it was not a discipline for which women were well-suited, right? Um, I also think here of Bell Hooks' essay, True Philosophers, Beauvoir and Bell, right, where she identifies as just true philosopher, even though Bell, and I agree that Bell Hooks is a philosopher, even though she's not formally trained in philosophy, and also identifies herself alongside Simone de Beauvoir as a true philosopher. Um, but then something else I often say about this when we're thinking about the Western philosophical canon in particular, is when you look at how history of philosophy is taught in the US context at least oftentimes they'll start with the pre-Socratics with Thales and uh-huh. water and so my argument is if Thales water counts then anything goes in terms of what is really <laughs> philosophy
0: <laughs> I should say everybody here is nodding vigorously as, you, as you've been talking about the, the this and this new definition of the the true philosopher I want to ask Sky because Sky you confess to starting with the fiction is the fiction separable from the philosophy or is it a working out of it
4: Good question. Um, So I think it is, I would say it's a working out of it because, you know, Beauvoir seems to be, you know, doing philosophy through her fiction and kind of working in the... I guess working with the ambiguity of creating characters who face different dilemmas, who who face different challenges, and and teasing out the complexities of of situations, because that was you know a key part of what Beauvoir was acknowledging that we're all born into different contexts, we have different pressures around us, and you know that that matters significantly, um, and so I, I I do appreciate the way she kind of uses fiction um, in that way. And, I mean, Plato's Symposium was the same. I mean, we've had so many. You know, she wasn't new in doing that. Um, But uh, the the way she she focused on kind of those nuanced situations through fiction was was very skillful. But what's also great is that she wrote, um, I guess, you know, the hard classic philosophy through, you know, the second sex and, and her essays, and that allows us to kind of talk about the philosophy, but also think about the philosophy in terms of, of the fiction and these the stories that she creates. The, the the major work we should mention
0: is the mandarins which won the Prix Goncourt. and it it's a a romana clef a story that resembles something of her own life and circle it's about the personal lives of a a close knit group of french intellectuals starting at the end of the second world war and going into the 50s lauren as the person who's been really has been handling the fiction you're translating her what do you do you have a sense of what she's trying to accomplish in that work Yeah, I was just thinking about the mandarins
2: while Sky was talking because um, I was actually reading it as the pandemic hit in 2020, which is kind of funny. And I was looking at everyone reading, you know, Camus and the plague. And I was like, no, this is the book we need to be reading. This is a book that's asking us to think about what what we're going to how we're going to rebuild after you know after this cataclysm after this catastrophe what kind of world is going to emerge from it it's you know it depicts the the period of time in france that followed the the end of the second world war and it's asking like who's going to triumph the gaullists the communists you know the socialists who's who's going to inherit france who should inherit france who's going to lead us forward Um, And that's a novel that I think we really see her breaking out of discipline, going beyond philosophy and beyond political thinking and beyond even, you know, a conventional novel to really, I mean, it's an epic, epic attempt to understand um, the time,
0: the times that they had all just lived through and to try to think a way forward well I I want to encourage us to try and understand the time that she had just lived through actually I know we're going to talk more about the, the fiction in a moment but could we set up some of the political context of the moment that she's living through um, Kate she, she lives through the occupation of, of Paris during the second world war and I, I'm very fond of the story about how she wore her hair in a turban and slept in ski wear to save on water and heat during the occupation there are always these lovely anecdotes about about Beauvoir but what 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 form does her own politics take does it have a can we can we put a name to it
3: Oh, so this is a really interesting question because uh, many one one of the kinds of uh, knee jerk reactions I encountered when I said I was working on Beauvoir was um people saying well she wasn't political Beauvoir wasn't political um some people thought that she um was complicit in the occupation, um, because she worked for a radio program and until the archives revealed that she wasn't working on propaganda, um, that people worried that she was apolitical and just went went along with things. So in, in terms of what form her politics takes, um, I think it's a form that is not always acknowledged as political in interesting ways. So she wrote a play uh, in um, the early 1940s called Useless Mouths, which is about, uh, it's set in medieval flound- Flanders, and it describes a city under siege. And the, um, the men of the city are bu- busy building a tower to the glory of France. And they decide, the elders of the city decide that the, um, all of the food that remains in this besieged city should be given to the men who are building the tower and that the women and the elderly and the children should be left to starve, and so she's she's criticizing a politics which doesn't take the humanity of women and children and the elderly seriously, um, very early in her career. So before the second sex, and which attends to the differences in class location of of members of the the city, um, and so I think she, by her own by her own account she had a conversion in the second world war um i think because of seeing need in ways that she hadn't faced it before and uh, seeing how decisions were made um and whose lives counted as human and, and worthy of saving
0: and then we get we get we get the the Beauvoir who lives through the bohemian blossoming of 1930s Paris through the wartime occupation, and then the the Beauvoir who's living through the sexual revolution of the 60s. And I, I wonder, is it possible to say how far she and her work was a driver behind those social and cultural changes, or the product of it? Is this an environment that creates Beauvoir? Sky, I wonder if you have thoughts on that.
4: Yeah, I I mean I want to say both because you know she was coming to you know into she was becoming more and more popular like as these things were happening and she was responding to these situations and and you know there were lots of people like Betty Friedan and Gloria Steinem and, and these um, very, uh, I guess, prominent voices who were responding and building on what uh, um, Beauvoir had been writing. And Beauvoir was writing, as Kate says, she was writing politically and, and very actively. And so she, she had a voice and she was putting it out there. And so um, I'm not, I, I think it was a, a feedback loop, and, but she yeah. was certainly pushing pushing things along in that respect. Yeah, she's outward facing too. I always think that's one of the most remarkable things
0: about her is she's thinking about the question of Algeria um, in the 20th century uh, for France. Um, And she's also thinking about America, Catherine. Actually, I might ask you about this, about her relationship to America. She visits the US in 1957 on a lecture tour. And then I think think she visits twice uh, in 1955 and then 1957, I think. And I'm interested who she's meeting in the US and what she's observing there and whether that inflects her work in any way.
1: Absolutely. She visits um, the U.S. actually while she's writing The Second Sex, right? So she writes, I think she publishes the first volume of it. She comes to the U.S. and she also publishes the memoir, America Day by Day, kind of in between the publication of the first and second um, volume of The Second Sex. Um, so while she's here, she has already become good friends with Richard Wright, who had spent a lot of, like, so Le Temps Modern had published several translations of Wright's work. Um, she had done some translation for him when he was um, on tour in France. She spends time with Richard and Ellen Wright while she's in the United States. She does a series of lectures. I think she had like 25 or so lectures that she did while she was in the U.S. And what's interesting to me about her time here is she spent some time in New York with Richard Wright where she wants to observe like, you know, authentic jazz and things like this. Um, she goes to um, some reservations, some Native American reservations, while she's here. So she re- literally goes from like the East Coast through the Midwest um, to the West Coast, and I think that definitely um, informs her experience here, and it also influences, I think, what happens um, in the second set. So, yeah. so the U.S. Inf- inf- influences her as well in terms of. Um, Myrtle's An American Dilemma. So when she initially is thinking about writing the second sex, she has in mind a smaller book like Sartre's um, Anti-Semite and Jew. But after reading this encyclopedic text by, um, by Myrtle, Um, She ends up doing this encyclopedic project with the second sex. So the U.S. and observations of um, anti-Black racism, segregation and things like that definitely are influential on um, on Beauvoir.
0: And, And you mentioned Richard Wright. Some people might not know who Richard Wright is. Just give us a little...
1: So Richard Wright is an author probably best known for Native Son and Black Boy, so Native Son is a novel, Black Boy is more autobiographical, Um, he also wrote several short stories, again, um, Black Boy was translated, parts of Black Boy and Native Son um, and several of his other short stories were um, translated um, in French. Um, I've argued that a lot of people think that Richard Wright became existentialist after his time in France with Beauvoir right. and Sartre. But my argument is like when you look at Black Boy Native Son long before he ever went to France, there are existential themes and threads that are happening there. in there. And there's an interesting letter from Richard Wright, I think, to C.L.R. James, where he talks about um, looking at some other existentialists like Kierkegaard. He has like a book, um, a, a a table that has several books on it um, of existentialism. And he says to C.L.R. James, you know, you see all of those books over there. I knew everything in those books before <laughs> I even read them, right? So part of my argument with regard to Richard Wright is that he was already engaged yeah. in a Black existential philosophy before going to France.
0: Yeah, that it has its own energy across the Atlantic of its own. Yeah. You're listening to Free Thinking on BBC Radio 3 or the Arts and Ideas podcast on BBC Sounds with me, Shahid Abari. We're talking about Simone de Beauvoir today in partnership with the Forum for Philosophy, who We run free and often online philosophy discussions open to the public. You can find out more on their website, philosophy-forum.org. And, of course, we have our own philosophy playlist where you'll find programmes about Hannah Arendt and Michel Foucault and episodes exploring 20th century women writers like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton. You'll find them on our website, bbc.co.uk forward slash freethinking. Lauren, I must come to you and we must talk about the inseparables which you've just translated. Uh, and The Inseparables is a story by Beauvoir uh, about a childhood friendship between two girls, Sylvie Lepage, who seems to be a proxy for Beauvoir, and Zaza, um, based on a young woman called Elizabeth Lacroix. Why is this such an important relationship for Beauvoir? You're muted, Lauren. I <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I think it's a really important relationship
2: for Beauvoir for many reasons, but I think the one that really comes to the fore in The Inseparables is that it was through her her relationship, well, you know, Sylvie is the is the proxy, as you said for for Beauvoir in the novel, her relationship with André, who's the proxy for, for Zaza that she finds a way to have conversations like real challenging and expressive and and enlightening conversations that allow her to imagine who she might be or become outside the bounds the very constrictive bounds I might say of young womanhood in bourgeois France you know in in the 19 you know late 19 teens and early 1920s um and so i think You know, the fact that Beauvoir fictionalized this friendship so many times over the course of her writing career just attests to the degree to which Zaza was fundamental for her in in terms of who she became and how she was able
0: to become that person. And the relationship between Sylvie and Andre, uh, Simone and Zaza, it has, it's its intimate. It has, ha, it felt a little bit, reading your translation, it felt a little bit like Jane Eyre's friendship with Helen Burns at Lowood School. There's a real deep emotional connection and, and something more maybe even. Um, you call the book poignant, chilling and eviscerating and I really want to ask you, in what way is it eviscerating? What does eviscerating mean in that context?
2: Um... Uh, For me, it it meant basically that I I see this novel as as in one way Beauvoir taking aim at the people that she holds responsible for Zaza's untimely death, namely her mother and, you know, all that she represents in terms of the haute bourgeoisie and and super Catholic, you know, restrictions um, on, on young women. And basically, an entire like worldview, I guess, not not just about it's not just about feminism. Um, and Maurice Merleau Ponty, who who was Zaza's you know erstwhile lover, who wouldn't Beauvoir thought that he should have committed to marrying her, and he wouldn't. Um, and yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, herself as well, that she wasn't able to intervene and 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 help Zaza to feel that she could stand on her own feet and leave this repressive background. Um, So I see it as as sort of eviscerating a social context and a number of people within that context and and not excusing herself.
0: Yeah, we should say Maurice Maleponti, of course, a really important French thinker too, um, in that existentialist and phenomenologist circle. Um, I think one of the most interesting things about the book is that it, it's intimate. And I wonder whether you, Lauren, translating the book, whether it alters the way that we understand Beauvoir in some way. Did, did you find that? Um,
2: it, you know, I think when when we talk about the novel being intimate, maybe this is sort of what you're getting at. I, I do. I, it was in my mind as I was translating the novel that this was perhaps not outright a tragic lesbian love story, as Paul Preciado called it in Liberation, but certainly an a, a relationship of such intensity that I think we have to think about it as, as a queer relationship. And I believe this is the most explicit um, instance of this kind of intense relationship between two girls that we find in Beauvoir's um, fiction. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I, I'm I'm happy to say a bit more about why I think it's it's a queer novel, if you like, but I think that it's important to think about the the kind of zones of of affection or intimacy that can exist between women that don't necessarily Fall into the category of lesbianism, but are also not ju- just quote unquote, you yeah. know, two girls being friends in school.
0: Well, I think you were going to share a few lines from it. Is that right? You had selected, because I'm very keen yeah. to have each of us share some lines from Beauvoir to hear her voice in our discussion, as it were. Um, but Lauren, I know you've selected something from The Inseparables for us. Okay, we'll read a little bit. Um, so this is a
2: scene. It's Andrea's birthday. I think she's 10 or 11 years old or something. And um, Sylvie, Sylvie says, I decided to make André a handbag following a pattern in la mode pratique, which I was determined would be the height of luxury. I chose red and blue silk with a shimmering thick gold brocade, which in my eyes was as beautiful as a fairy tale, and assembled it on a woven wicker frame I made myself. I hated to sew, but I worked so assiduously that when the little purse was finished, it looked truly beautiful, with its cherry-colored satin lining and its pleats, I wrapped it in tissue paper, laid it in a box, and tied it with a ribbon.
0: Isn't that lovely? See, I, I'm I'm not sure that I, when I say intimate, whether I do mean that there is some erotic frisson between the girls. I mean that there's some sort of there's something deep, you know. There's a connection, and I'm not sure quite what it is. But do do you think that we should be reading this as a as a a queer novel and, and thinking of Beauvoir as a queer writer? Well, I, do, I don't want to be prescriptive in, in terms of using the term
2: queer. I don't think that there's necessarily an erotic charge necessarily um, between these two young girls. I mean, they're like 10, 11 years old. That's not really yeah. what I'm talking about without wanting to undermine you know, the very real sexuality that the children can have that I think we try to take away from them. Um, but if you're thinking about queerness in the kind of like Eve Sedgwick queer theory kind of sense, it's like, very open and and ambiguous and, and undefinable, the kind of open mesh of possibilities, I think is, is the Cedric quote. I think that that, I mean, she's made she's made her purse, you know, like they're 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 little like encoded references, I think, to some kind of sexuality that the girls may not necessarily have any firsthand knowledge of or or yearning toward or ability to articulate to themselves. But for a grown ass woman to be about <laughs> a young girl making another young girl a little red satin chain purse, like you know, yeah. I'm sorry. But yeah. Kate,
0: okay, you wanted to come in there.
3: I did, because I think your you're, question about the, the erotic is a really interesting one. Um, I think one of the contributions I take from Beauvoir philosophically is that we inherit from patri- patriarchy an impoverished imaginary of what the erotic is. We inherit an, an imaginary according to which the desire for connection with other human beings is uh, has only one end, which is heterosexual sex. And you know, the polite way of putting it is that's not true. Um, And so I think I I, I resist the reading of Beauvoir as a queer writer, partly because she was an existentialist and she did not believe that people had identities. And so to the extent that queerness is associated with a particular identity, I I think it's anachronistic and possibly mistaken to, to, um, to say that Beauvoir is that kind of writer. Yeah. Um, because she criticized identity often as a form of bad faith um she's she thought that selfhood was about possibility um, and indeterminacy and ambiguity to use one of your words lauren um but I think she would have resisted the idea that you have to identify in a particular category That's
0: let me true. let me draw sky in here because I know sky you, you're writing about Beauvoir you're working on your own book and you're thinking i think about concepts of relationship and reciprocity what is it that Beauvoir helps us to learn about that do you think or understand about that
4: yeah and I think the inseparables opens up a really interesting question about reciprocity because it is an unequal relationship in in many ways I mean there are different social levels there um uh you know um Sorry, I keep going to say booba. No, Sylvie is like Boba going to be expected to go out to work, whereas Andre is being groomed for marriage and marriage in, you know, to you know an appropriate person that her parents kind of pre-approve. Um, so I, I'm reading the Inseparables as you know a celebration of a friendship and a friendship that doesn't necessarily have to be equal. Um, for example, there's um there's so much um, I guess, generosity of spirit that we see um with with Andre, I'm um, sorry, see with Sylvie. Um, and you know, they treasure the moments they have together, but especially Sylvie treasures them. Um, and you know, there's there's certainly a strong trust, although they don't share everything with each other. Um, but you know, and further to the earlier discussion, I, I agree that this book opens up possibilities for female friendship, like in a more explicit way than Beauvoir had done before. So if, if you read about the young girl in in the second sex, you know, Beauvoir says things like... Um, I don't know, all women are a little bit homosexual. And you know, she talks about the young girl, um, how the um her best girlfriend provides support for her to escape the maternal cycle of uh, circle and to explore the world, and in particular the sexual world. Um, and now her friend is both an object wrenching her to the limits of herself and a witness who restores that self to her. So, you know, she's in the second sex, she's certainly if we apply that to The Inseparables, it's it's possible to read it in um, a, a queer sense or through a queer lens. Um, but, you know, when I read Lauren's translation, like, I didn't get that from the book. I didn't see that there were... Um, you know, I think there was much evidence to suggest that she, it wasn't you know sexual because Sylvie says things like you know the type of love where you kiss has no meaning for me or no or no reality. Um, and Sylvie genuinely just wants Andre to be happy and I think that's a beautiful relationship because it's intimate because it's passionate, but it's it's not clearly sexual and I think mm-hmm. the the word used earlier was um ambiguous and I think that ambiguity is really really important here um because it's as Kate said you know we're, we're so driven into oh classifying something as romantic or friendship and never the twain shall meet but in <laughs> fact you know there's there's a whole spectrum in yeah. there and let's not get into this patriarchal thing where we say oh let's you know if it's not like a you know a reserved friendship then it must be sexual and therefore it's taboo and therefore oh let's not women get too close to one another and i think this novel really is is beautiful because it does show more possibilities beyond that binary i'm I'm going to
0: encourage our audience to ask questions uh, they already have been so we, we we're going to have some um discussion with them in a moment um, but before we head to them i want us to talk about the second sex, we've been building up to it. Uh, in 1949, before published her revolutionary two-volume investigation into women's oppression, some sex. Its essential argument is that if we are to challenge the oppression of women in society, then we must attend to their experiences of desire, of family life, of education, and agency in the world. Kate, I, 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 the, the version I've got is a translation an early translation the translation matters doesn't it to you? you 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 think that there is some distinction between the different versions is that right absolutely <laughs> tell um, us about that
3: yes so the translation that you have is the first english translation by h.m partially and yeah, right. there's a there's a funny there's a funny anecdote about that which is that blanche knopf um who was uh in charge of Not publishing, at least had power at not publishing, overheard people talking about the second sex when she was in Paris. And she thought that it was a kind of um, basically a female equivalent to the first Kinsey report on sexuality in the adult male. And so she's like, I'll buy the rights for that. And she took it back to New York and she decided to get a zoologist to translate it. And um, this zoologist had some very literary terms of phrase. There are some lovely, lovely sentences in that translation, but he only translated about 85% of the book. So 15% of it was cut. And uh, he did not consistently render her philosophical terminology. Right. And so this, this matters a great deal because he made Beauvoir look like a fuzzy thinker who didn't employ her own philosophical terms consistently and therefore sometimes made contradictory or very confusing claims. And one of the problems in Beauvoir reception is that there wasn't even a second translation to compare it to until um, just over 10 years ago. And uh, so much of the, the, well, the first 50 years worth of Beauvoir commentary in English is based on a mutilated version of the text.
0: I know that you you selected an extract that you wanted to share with us that might be telling in some way.
3: Well, so it's... It, it's interesting to me uh, because I think it speaks to some of the themes we've talked about. Um, so, uh, partially cut all of Beauvoir's references to socialist feminisms. And one of the criticisms that a lot of American feminists have made of the second sex is that she, that Beauvoir had nothing to say about race or class. And it turns out that if you cut all of the references to socialist feminism, you got a lot less to say about race and class. And so there's a this claim that she makes in the introduction. Uh, where she famously says that women do not say we, um, she says they live dispersed among men and divided by men's interests. So here's a direct quotation from her, tied by homes, work, economic interests and social conditions to certain men, fathers or husbands, they are more, more closely uh, tied to these men than to other women. As bourgeois women, they are in solidarity with bourgeois men and not with women proletarians. As white women, they are in solidarity with white men and not with black women. And so, later in the second sect, she says what people need to do is to recognize that oppressed people in society are usually used by oppressors as weapons against each other. And so, what they, what they, what she thinks they should do is to form coalitions. Um, but this is often overlooked, I think, in in some of the analysis of the sect.
0: Yeah, Catherine. Can I ask you about the? This is a philosophical book. Is there, is there a way to connect this to existent? Is this an existentialist book? Yes,
1: definitely. I mean, I think it's, we, we can't look at these writings as mutually exclusive, right, or as separate from one another, right? So there's a Black woman philosopher here in the U.S. named Crescent Miley Mason, who's also the president of the International Simone de Beauvoir Society right now, and a professor at Haverford College. And one of the main arguments she makes is that all of these texts really need to be read in conversation with one another, whether you're talking about the memoirs, the fiction, the quote-unquote quote, philosophical writings, Um, The second sex, um, all of these things, the the plays, right? All of them need to be read in conversation with one another. So the second sex is certainly a philosophical text. You have um, themes of existentialism. You have themes of phenomenology. She's looking at Marxism and socialism. Um, She's looking at biology. I mean, it's a very interdisciplinary text and philosophy is certainly among the disciplines that are engaged in that text.
0: Sky, I wonder if I can ask you the hard question, which is, um, w- w- what's the claim, the central claim of this book? If there is a, an idea that we should take away
4: from this, what is, what is it? Well, okay, so there are a couple of different ways we can uh, <laughs> answer this question. Um, I mean, the most popular one, or the most traditional one, is that one isn't born, but rather becomes woman. Um, and which is that statement in itself, um, I mean, as Kate Cutpatrick points out in her book, it's it wasn't original to beauvoir She took um, someone else's idea that says, I, I think it was, you know, in reference to a man. Um, but, you know, and, and even that statement has been interpreted in so many different ways. Um, but what I think it means is that we are, um, we're, going back to the original existential kind of mantra that existence precedes essence so we exist first we're we're thrown into the world we don't get to choose to be born we don't get to choose the situations into which we're born but after that it's up to us to create our essence but of course creating our essence is not only up to us because we are in these uh, situations and you know under lots of different pressures Um, and so it's um uh, I guess it's, so that's the main one but then you know I'm, I'm gonna let Kate talk about her um, uh, her important point at the one that she says is original so am I allowed to bat it to Kate? Yeah now? of course <laughs> right? if Kate's willing.
3: Well I, I am willing but I want to hear what other people think too because one of the interesting things about this book is that it has generated such a diverse range of readings um, and I don't actually think that the central so so Diverse and contradictory. So um, there's a popular reading of the book, which you'll get like tweeted out by you and women, um, which says that, that one isn't born but rather becomes a woman. And and the idea here is that Simone de Beauvoir uses a kind of sex/gender distinction to say that a woman is something that you become. But I. I don't actually think that she employs the sex-gender distinction in the second sex. The view that she does is really popular, partly because Judith Butler has advanced this claim, but Butler advanced that claim on the basis of the partial translation. Um, and so I think that we the, the second sex deserves a little bit more debate about what are the central questions. A lot of people think the central question is, what is a woman? But later in the introduction, she says, how does a woman in the feminine condition accomplish herself? Like, what are the challenges about becoming an ethical person that are particular to being a woman on patriarchy? I think that's a much more interesting myself.
0: I know, Catherine, you've been, uh, you've been wrestling with this for a long time. And you've been thinking about the way that Beauvoir has been read by generations of black women philosophers, too, haven't you?
1: Yes, absolutely. So I often have pointed out and argued that there are at least 60 years of <laughs> Black women and other women of color scholarship on the second sex that has gone virtually unacknowledged and underengaged in a lot of the secondary literature on the second sex. So we can go all the way back to Claudia Jones, who prevented a negative review of the second sex from running in the Communist Party's cultural journal, Masses and Mainstream. Um, But in addition to um, blocking that negative review of the second sex in the US, she also assisted in getting Elizabeth Lawson's more favorable positive review of that text published in the journal, The Worker. We have Lorraine uh, Hansberry's review that um, Kate mentioned earlier, and this review was written in 1957. It was not published at the time that it was written, but it did get published in Beverly Guy sheftalls Words of Fire, which was published in 1995. So we've had access to that in a published form for over 20 years, but it still is very much um, underread and under um, engaged. Elizabeth, I'm I'm sorry, Angela Davis cites um, Beauvoir's accounts of sexual relations and animals in the second Sex as a way of critiquing the sexual assaults endured by enslaved Black women by b- white male slave masters in 1971. Audre Lorde notes in her famous essay, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Um, she has a quote from Simone de Beauvoir's Ethics of Ambiguity in that essay, but the essay was initially a speech at a, an, at a conference in 1979, which was commemorating the 30th anniversary of the publication of The Second Sex. Going outside the US context, you have Cheekwenye Ogiyumi, who presents Beauvoir as one example of the differences in the projects of black and white feminist writing. And that's in 1985 and 1988, you have Deborah King who critiques Beauvoir and other white feminist use of the race gender analogy and their analyses of patriarchy. Um, Jamaica Kincaid has a novel, a short novel called Lucy, where she makes a, pa- a passing reference to this famous sentence in the second sex, noting that that line could not possibly explain the life of black women, um, including the protagonist in the novel Lucy. You have Norma Alarcon in 1994 contrasting Beauvoir's singular and individualist approach to subjectivity in the second sex. And then even into the 20th century, you have Oye Monke Oyewumi, who argues that a problem with Beauvoir and white feminism is the, that they often try to universalize from their own experience in which woman equals wife and the support half of a couple in a nuclear family. And you can go on and on with Mariana Ortega, with Bell Hooks, whom I previously mentioned, Stephanie rivera Barutz, Q. Lee, and um, Aliyah Al Saji, just to name a few. I didn't even get to it, all of them, but
0: it's yeah. well. It, I'm I'm finding it immensely moving, Catherine, to think about this writer as the as a ne- as a, a node in this nexus, this enormous set of connections, and um, writing from her. Um, inspiring more writing and, and the kinds of conversations that you're talking about Catherine I, I know that there is a question here about whether there is solidarity or whether there is insensitivity in her alignment of the otherness of women with racial otherness but I, and I, but I wonder for all of you if, it, if it's possible in this book to argue that the oppression of women and the experience of women is uniquely exceptional is that possible? What do you think? Catherine, do you want to have a go at that first? Yeah, I'll come back. So one thing I think is
1: important to recognize that when we're looking at Black women and other women of color's engagement with the second sex, not to assume that there's this one-way influence that's happening, right? Like, And I think similar things happen with Richard Wright. As we said before, there's this assumption that Richard Wright somehow became existentialist by hanging out with Sartre and, right. <laughs> and Beauvoir, and that's not what happened, right? And so in a similar way, these Black women and other women of color that I've named already had their own analyses of race, class, gender, and other things before coming to the second sex, and they're coming... Sometimes favorably in the case of Lorraine Hansberry or Claudia Jones, other times more critically in the cases of most of the others. Right, so I think it's important to realize that you know Simone de Beauvoir's "The Second Sex" is not what um, influenced or shaped all of these um, other scholars' um, sure. theories of, of gender. Right, in a lot of ways, they they had their own theories and they're kind of critiquing Beauvoir's theory with their own. Um, but having said that, I do think it's important to think about. Um, not just the I don't think that women's oppression is something I, I, I think you have to take for granted that women's oppression is somehow separate from other forms of oppression or in order to claim that it's somehow singular. Right. And it's impossible for it to be singular because gender oppression is also informed by class. Oppression is also informed by racial oppression, um, national origin, language, religion, sexuality. Right. So they're always already intersectional with other forms of oppression. Right. So you can't talk about the oppression of women. Yeah. women you would have to think about how that oppression of women is going to be different when you're looking at it through the lens of race class gender and other identity um, formations and even if you look at Beauvoir as rejecting identity which I don't necessarily read her in that way but um, even if we um, if even if I were to agree with Kate on that Beauvoir still does take seriously what she calls the situation of people right and yeah. the situation is going to take into account things like facticity which bring us back to questions of identity
0: yeah Kate do you want to come in there yeah,
3: so I think
1: just because I'd like to respond
3: to Catherine. So when I say she rejects identity, I I I'm I'm referring to a kind of metaphysical conception of personal identity where that we aren't coincident with ourselves. There's no essence of me that pre that determines who I'm going to be in the future. Um I do think she thinks social location matters a great deal. Um so I think that's a, that's an important clarification. Um the um I suppose yeah, I th- I'll leave it at that so other people can. <laughs> <to be honest.
0: laughs> well, it's a really hard question, but I I might a- allow you to all escape it slightly because we must attend to our audience who are asking amazing questions. Um, I- I'm going to come back to, to, to these questions in a moment, too, before we close our event. But let me acknowledge our audience who have been really engaging with this discussion. Um, uh, there's a question here um, from... Tina Yeh what does the panel think about the bourgeoisie nature of Beauvoir's feminist philosophy and and Kate you talked a little bit about about her her socialist leanings maybe in the second sex but I wondered if others wanted to talk about that the the bourgeois nature of um Beauvoir's writing Lauren maybe you've got thoughts on that um I think to read The Inseparables is to read a pretty eviscerating critique of the bourgeoisie
2: and its hold on ways of being in the world, um, especially for, you know, obviously for, for Beauvoir herself and for her, her friend Zaza. But you know, I I, I think that, that that's probably as far as I, I would go in terms of you know venturing to 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 make blanket statements about you know Beauvoir's writing, you know, overall.
4: Yeah, can I chime in there? Um... And you know, I think this was brought up at the beginning that um, you know, Beauvoir came from a family that was kind of, you know, middle class but then lost their money and you know, Beauvoir was required to go out and work. So and she certainly had privileges that she wasn't initially aware of, but you know, she says that through writing The Second Sex, she did become aware of how privileged she was to to be able to go to school and to be able to study to be a teacher. And, um, and, uh, and, and, you know, she was actually really grateful for for that opportunity um, and to be able to compete with with men like Jean-Paul Sartre and Molo ponty and, you know, all of those guys who had, um, you know, superior schooling to to women. Um, And so I guess, yeah, it wasn't until after the during the, after the second sex, that she really, she really recognized that. And she does critique um, you know, middle and upper class white women in, in the second sex, saying that, you know, they're tethered to their, like, I think Kate wrote, read out this um, quote, that they're tethered to their oppressors more deeply than to one another. And there's so many temptations for women to, to sell out and to take the easy path if they can, especially for white women. But, you know, there are parts where she does acknowledge the struggle of working women and you know, she says explicitly like how um uh you know women in rural areas are, are treated so poorly and she analyzed the poor conditions of of sex workers and uh, she, she says things like it's not the sex work that's or the work that's degrading it's the conditions of the work that's degrading and so you know she was really pushing back and and, and challenging that there's a, there's a question
0: here from Sophie Parrish um, and the, the question, I, I may paraphrase if I may as well, as well, Sophie, the question is, is transcendence a fundamentally masculine concept? But I wonder whether we could expand it to think about whether the philosophical language that that Beauvoir inherits and is part of may be inherently masculine and that she might be challenging that. Is, there, is that one way to think about what she's doing?
3: Yes, so this, this, this is a great question, and it enables me to talk a bit about the Harlem Renaissance. Um, yeah, I was kind of biting my lip earlier when Catherine Sophia Bell was talking about um, Richard Wright, because one of the other, the other things that Beauvoir did when she was in New York was that she went to the Abyssinian Baptist Church and she heard Adam Clayton Powell preach, and she was impressed by how political it was. And the, the word transcendence um, is often invoked in this kind of criticism of Beauvoir where she accepts Sartre's philosophy of transcendence, which is masculinist, um, but if you go back farther in the history of philosophy, transcendence and freedom are linked together. The, the kind of locus of human personhood, the, the center of um, your your desire or longing, or to use bell hooks's word, yearning for something more than the min- mundane and the everyday. And it, so, I think that there's a kind of religious history to this word transcendence. And you might want to claim that it's masculinist, but I find it quite dissatisfying to do so. Um, I find it equally dissatisfying to say that it belongs to Sartre.
0: Yeah, great. Um, there is a question, Catherine, for you, I think for you, and uh, and it's the discussion that you and Kate have been having, which is about um, the tension between an existentialist rejection of identity and the importance of identity for people of colour and minorities. And, and, and this uh, person is asking you to, to talk more on that topic.
1: Yeah, so I think oftentimes the the perception is that people of color and minorities are more attached to identity than white people. But I think part of the issue is whiteness is often presented as universal and anything that's not white is assumed to be particular, right? And this actually is a thread that's gone throughout our conversation, right? Like from the question of whether or not we're going to talk about um, specifically Beauvoir and her partners, to the question of whether or not she is a philosopher, to the question of... Um, you know, how we're going to category categorize her writings, right? So like when you think about any of the white men who are named in the Western philosophical um, canon, no philosophy paper ever starts out by articulating or justifying why I'm talking about this white male as a philosopher, right? But if you ever hear anybody give a philosophy talk about someone who's not a dead white man or a living white man, oftentimes the paper is prefaced with why this is philosophically relevant, right? So the issue is not so much that I think black people or other people of color are more wedded to or committed to identity because a lot of them are looking at how they can also transcend certain identities. The question is, you know, how do we push back against this operating assumption that whiteness is this universal category while anything that's not white is somehow very specific and particular?
0: Yeah. We, we we mentioned Jean Paul Sartre, but uh, we've also mentioned Hannah Arendt, and actually she's the person I, I often couple Beauvoir with. I, I think I think about these two giant women philosophers of the 20th century, and I wonder if they both have a certain sacredness, a something sacred about Arendt and about Beauvoir, which makes them hard to criticize. Am I am I right? to say that? So I'm going to give a hard note to that
1: (laughs) in part because my first book is on Hannah Arendt and the Negro question where I'm looking at problems with anti-Black racism and Hannah Arendt's and across her corpus right so a lot of people tend to assume that Hannah Arendt somehow got it right because this she's this philosopher of pluralism and you have the whole separation of um, you know the public the private and the social and all of that kind of stuff and the only place that she misstepped was in the essay um on reflections on Little Rock. And so one of the things I do in my book on Hannah Arendt and Negro question is show that the argument that's operating in Reflections on Little Rock is consistent across her writings from Origins of Totalitarianism to the human condition to on revolution to on violence and so on. Right. So I'm very critical of so I have no problems criticizing Hannah it. Arendt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean so so and so with both Arendt and, and I'm just finished a book on some on the Book de Beauvoir looking at these critical intersectional readings of the second sex and where she Um, is really inattentive to the issue of black women and other women of of color in some cases, or is really problematically attentive in other cases, Uh right? So even if we look at her visit to the United States, right, like there are discussions of Richard Wright, there's this race gender analogy that she deploys where black equals black man and white equals white women without any um, kind of serious account of the conditions of black women in the U.S., for example, even though she spends significant time in the U.S., Um, And I think you have the more problematic engagements when she's talking about Indians, and she uses the term Indian both for Native American as well as from Indians from India, right? Um, When you have uh, the accounts that she gives of um, Muslim women, that's really problematic in the second sex. So I have no issue with, I mean, I I think they both um, are are important philosophical figures that we should take seriously that have some things to offer, but not without critiques, right? And I think we actually... um, do a disservice to these texts when we try to kind of sweep under the rug these more problematic claims as opposed to really bringing them to the centre and taking them away from the margins um, for both figures.
0: Did you want to come in, Kate, very quickly?
3: I agree. I mean, I think to treat women as true intellectuals, true philosophers means to disagree with them, to read them seriously and to disagree with them. Um, But I think it's also important to acknowledge uh, how much Beauvoir has... um, Well, how much women have read her and found her insightful in illuminating their own experience in many different cultures. Um, So I wouldn't want that to get lost. But I agree that we need to disagree.
0: Yeah. Well, I would say that we are living through a particular moment where there is a wrestling with or a wrangling with ideas like that, which Beauvoir was putting forward. And I wonder whether we have to think differently about her axiom that one is not born, but rather becomes woman in the light of trans activism. Is it it a formulation in the second sex that still pertains? Does it it still work? Um, What do you think, Sky?
4: That's a hard question. And I know I have landed it at your feet. It is a hard question, and it's something I'm still thinking through. So I would like to pass on
0: that question, if that's okay. <laughs> of course, but does anybody want to have a go? Do, I mean, does that formulation still pertain, regardless of the trans debate? Is it? Does it still have pertinence to be thinking about womanhood as something that one becomes, rather than being born?
3: I think it depends what you, what like what the reference of the term woman is. But I don't actually think that that's a that's a that is a an accurate summary of the book's central claims. Um, the book is about the given, so yeah. that, that everyone is born into a body that they didn't choose, into circumstances that they didn't choose, into a culture that they didn't choose. Um, and the way that the given is lived is, I think, central to her analysis in the second sex. sex. Um, so I, I don't think that it, I, I think that um, there are certain readings of the second sex which make it a dead end. Um, but I think that's a reason to go back and think it would read it differently.
0: Yes. Yeah. But the last question I want to ask each of you is, is we should put this on a T-shirt. What would Simone do now? Um, where would she stand on contemporary debates? What would she be campaigning for or writing about now, do you think? Lauren, what do you think? Um, yeah,
2: I mean, I definitely, this is maybe going to alienate a lot of listeners in the United Kingdom, but um, I think she would absolutely be standing up for trans rights and, <laughs> I mean, supporting mermaids and, and you know, doing a good, good amount, of, amount of activism um, in defense of the idea that, you know, woman, she uses the term, you know, as Kate says, as the given um, and, and in the singular, but her, her, her understanding is that it is a situation into which one can be socialized or direct oneself um, or be directed from outside. And, I, you know, I, I, I don't think that it's anachronistic to think that that is, that is where she would come down on that yeah. question. Kate?
3: So I'm kind of allergic to counterfactuals. I think, <laughs> I, and I, I think that rather than committing her to certain views, what I find inspiring about her, especially in her later life, is the way that she used her platform to elevate many women of different points of view. She didn't just use her platform um, to as a as a megaphone for people who agreed with her. Um, and she thought that for a long time women had been told not to ask questions about their situation and um, not to not to think for themselves but to be for men. And so I think she would say, "Think for yourself. Um, what are your values?" And that's 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 where I'd like to land on this.
4: Sky. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I agree with Kate, but I also would say that, you know, she fought pretty heavily for um, birth control and abortion and women to have uh, control over their own bodies. And, you know, we're seeing in the US, in Texas, you know, these laws are being threatened. And so I think she would be campaigning pretty heavily uh, for, for those. Yeah. And the last word to you, Catherine. So um, I think
1: Hannah Arendt and Simone de Beauvoir, both are people who have great insights, but simultaneously have some really problematic oversights, right? So there's a 1976 interview in which Ovar is asked if she would do another book on women, and she says no, and she kind of does a self-critique of the second sex. And so she says, you know, it, it focused too much on theory, and she says now that's no longer valid. What's really needed is that a whole group of women from all sorts of countries assemble their lived experiences and then derive from, from such experiences the patterns facing women everywhere, and that should information should be amassed from all classes, right? So there's a much more kind of inclusive um, direction she seems to want to go in. But then in the very same interview, she goes on to criticize black women in the United States, saying that they refuse to listen to the white women's liberation movement proselytizers, proselytizers simply because they were white such black women remain supportive of their black husbands despite exploitation simply because the person trying to make them aware of their exploitation were white, right? So there's a sort of white assumption of um, a white savior savior (laughs) complex or assumption of like that white women knew what was going on and black women didn't, even though in the U.S. there's a history of black feminism or proto-feminism, again, going back at least to Maria Stewart in 1831. Mm -hmm. So I think she probably would have some insights about what's going on today as well as, again, some problematic oversights um, about what's happening today.
0: Yeah, that I think seems a very fair summary. Thank you to my guests, Catherine Sophia Bell, Skye Cleary, Kate Cutpatrick, and Lauren Elkin. Kate's book, Becoming Beauvoir, and Lauren's translation of The Inseparables are out now. Coming up on Free Thinking, what's going on? I wish someone would tell me. Matthew Sweet has the answer with the program on Marvin Gaye, and Anne McElvoy is roaming around Romanian literature uh, with our next. Sorry. And <laughs> uh, Anam is roaming around Romanian literature with Philippe Sands and others. Do join us again. Goodbye. <laughs>